0: Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's way lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So hi, um, welcome to our show and thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having us here. It's a pleasure to pleasure to hop on with you today.
0: Yeah, so I think I think the best thing to do is to have the two of you introduce yourselves and and your company and the bigger picture of what you do cuz I think you're incredibly unique, con- you know, you have an incredibly unique contribution that you're making to to the food world these days. So, it's broader than just a company. So, with mm. that said, go for it.
1: Okay, well, I'll go first. Yeah, so I I am uh, Mike Costello and I'm a chef, but we're also, uh, in addition to being cooks, we're storytellers and farmers and educators, and we're here at uh, Lost Creek Farm in North Central West Virginia. And
2: yeah, and I'm Amy Dawson, and I'm one half of this enterprise. I'm um, more of the uh, baker and farmer end of things. Um, I grew up uh in Lost Creek, West Virginia, where we near where we live now. Um, and our farm is a family property that's been in my family for many generations.
1: In, in terms of Lost Creek Farm being a culinary business, you know, it's true that I sort of head things up in the kitchen and Amy is more the farm manager, but I think it's also important to just to note that as a farm to table business, Uh, you know, there is no food business without the farm and, you know, without us having a culinary business that was so kind of based here at this place, there's, uh, you know, no farm to go along with that. So as we describe our roles as, you know, a chef or a farm manager, I just, I always like to point that out, you know, that we, we do just about everything, um, in tandem and, uh, you know, are, are kind of steadily a team throughout every, every step of the way with our, our business.
0: Right. And what is this storytelling portion of what you do?
1: Um, Well, I guess you could say the storytelling portion is uh, important for a lot of things. I mean, it certainly is a uh, branding mechanism. um, But, you know, for us just sort of personally and how it, it kind of got us here, it's just a way that we kind of are able to connect food to people and to culture, because I think that's, that's what really makes our business kind of, uh, it's what sets us apart. I think from a, just as sort of a typical restaurant or others in the food world who are selling products, food products based on, you know, taste and flavor and texture or whatever else, uh, sort of defines an ingredient. We, we sort of consider, the cultural aspects of food and ingredients and recipes and traditions to be just as important as, as anything else. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I was sort of describing this to somebody the other day and I was like, you know, you've got your sort of tasting notes, right. For certain ingredients. And for us, it's like the, we sort of have tasting notes, if you will, on like the cultural side Mm of it. Um, because everything that we make sort of has a story behind it about, somebody and somebody's relationship to place. And I think that's what kind of defines us as, you know, being noted for, for cooking a regional cuisine is being able to base it on those stories.
2: And on the farming side, a lot of the varieties of plants that we grow, um, also are seed based on seeds that we've gotten from people. So there's a story behind, uh, like the tomato variety or the bean variety that we're serving as well. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. So, so you're just kind of going way back to the beginning here. So you said this is a, you're on a farm that's been in your family for a long time, right? Yes. Is it like second, third, fourth generation or?
2: Um, it, it, this property in particular is an interesting to me, an interesting story to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the property was owned before this, but the the house was built by my great-great-grandfather mm-hmm. um, on my father's side. And so his first wife passed away, and he remarried a younger woman. Um, and so she outlived him a good bit. Um, and when she couldn't live out here anymore, uh, she sold the property to my mom's parents. Hmm. So I, it's kind of coming to me from my mom's side, but it has longer ties to my dad's side of the family.
0: Whoa! It's almost like you were destined to be there.
2: Yeah, it sort of feels that way. Yeah,
1: and, but, and- but there was a little bit of a lapse, though. I mean, so we, you know, we moved up to the farm, and this property, you know, it had been almost twenty years since anybody lived here, so. Um. Um, it was kind of run down. Um, we didn't really, you know, directly inherit it from anyone who had been living here or farming here. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of work to do when we moved here to kind of get it back in order to be a working farm. And we've been working on it for, uh, you know, five or six years now. And we're still not back to, to the point where <laughs> we really needed to be, but right. uh, we're getting there. So.
0: Right. And I've seen pictures. It is a beautiful location.
1: You've seen the pictures that um, you know that we put on Instagram. Sometimes it's funny when people come out here. It was funnier the like the first couple of years that we were working on it, and um, they're like, "Oh, I see why you didn't put that picture on Instagram."
0: <laughs> <laughs> This, is, this would be the pile of old tractors and washing <laughs> yeah, machines, yeah. like right, kind right, of stuff. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. right. exactly. Right. Exactly. Welcome to the real world America. Right. <laughs> old
2: tires. Yeah. 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 And this is like depression era, era hoarding Shh. in outbuildings, like jars and uh, uh, bits of wire. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's, that's
0: telling a story too, right? Yes, indeed, it is.
1: And I mean, I think that's important to note because, you know, to us like we have there's a lot of insecurity about this and a lot of, you know, this is part of what we deal with. And part of what sort of drives us to do what we do is this sort of like uh, kind of fighting back against like some of the, the typical sort of perceptions about West Virginia and Appalachia. And I think it's like for us, you know, living in a place that had a bunch of rundown buildings and a bunch of old rusty cars on it, it was like we we dealt with those insecurities so when when we were sort of um encouraged to start having events actually on the farm you know we were like hell no we're not going to do that because the you know the farm is like under construction the house isn't nice you know it's like Mm -hmm. it all is to us it's like not really a nice sort of picture to put out to the world but then the reality of it is it does tell a story you're right about that so you know, everybody would come, especially city people, you know, the people that we were the most afraid would like have some kind of averse reaction to it. There was just like, you know, they've never been in a place before that's where they can feel like it's, you know, out in some rural place where it feels like progress is happening. And, you know, they're actually part of the story themselves when they come out and feel like they're contributing to this bigger dream that we have to turn this into something different.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. So are all the old tractors and the, the old tires and everything, is that all gone now or?
2: Not completely. Yeah. <laughs> we're still working on it. It's, yeah. Uh, it's been a busy seven years.
1: Yeah. And, you know, with the first couple of years, we were probably better than we are now at trying to take pictures on our phones and Every now and then, if we kind of get really down about a project taking too long or something, like we'll fire up the iPad and we'll mm-hmm. like we'll, we'll like look at the pictures we took six years ago. and Because it's important to remember how truly terrible the situation was <laughs> when we first moved here. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's like, wow, we actually have done quite a bit. Believe yeah, it or not. we've yeah.
2: come a long way, but it's <laughs> not completely cleaned up yet. Right. Well, and there's something authentic
0: as you're kind of indicating, there's something valuable about the authenticity of it, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like a lot of the going to the farm for farm to table dinners, which I love to do. um, But it feels a bit like Disneyland, right? Because I know that farms don't look like this.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then there's also, there's this sort of like fabricated poverty kitsch almost that, Uh you know, you see where it's like, you know, someone that are like nice at a posh farm will like, you know, park a rusty farm truck somewhere to right. sort of give it this like you know feel of uh, folksy hominess or something. But um no, no, we have the real thing. We don't <laughs> have to do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too Yeah, yeah. And are you? So I like to help our listeners imagine this. Are you in? In what you you guys called a holler, like are you in the in a valley or or are you up on the top of the hills? So yeah,
1: so we live in um, a valley. Yeah, we live in a holler, I guess, but we're kind of perched up on top of a hill that overlooks that um, the creek. So our Mm -hmm. our farm is Lost Lost Creek Farm. The Lost Creek itself goes through our farm, kind of in the bottom at the very bottom meadow that is kind of the middle of our farm. Mm -hmm. um and it's pretty wide open pastures uh cattle grazing out in the fields and we can look down at the road and the creek that sort of carve out the holler and Mm -hmm. um yeah sounds
0: beautiful so you moved back because you wanted to did you you guys were you both have culinary back um careers off the farm and then came back is that how that worked
1: uh, no, actually, we. I mean, uh, we we had yeah. we had um, both worked in food jobs before. Uh huh. Um, I had an interest in a culinary career a long time ago. In fact, when I was in high school, I had enrolled in a culinary school, um, Johnson and Wales. And this the Johnson and Wales is a pretty uh, good culinary school. At the time, the campus was in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh-huh. I had enrolled in that My actually my junior year in high school and was all set and ready to go and was just stoked about this idea of becoming a professional chef and maybe having my a, a restaurant of my own one day. Uh, but then I just worked at this restaurant my senior year in high school, and for several reasons, it was just a really terrible experience, <laughs> and it made me question... Um, you know, if this is really the path that I wanted to take, uh, for several reasons. I mean, one was the culinary school was very, very expensive. Um, and they had just kind of come up with this program to let students in West Virginia kind of have, um, you know, free in-state tuition, um, at West Virginia schools. But more importantly, I think, um, it was just that if you go to the culinary school and you get a culinary degree, you can't really do a hell of a lot else with Mm -hmm. that degree. You know, so I decided to um, change course. Uh, I was so bummed out about this restaurant experience and I didn't really know, you know, I thought maybe I would come back to food at some point in the future, but I wanted it to be on my own terms. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually went to journalism school uh, at West Virginia University. And um, I always say that that was so much better than what I could have done at culinary school because the, the sort of technical skills that it takes to cook are things that you can learn elsewhere. But the sort of um, passion for place that I developed by staying and going to school here, but also um, like forming a relationship with place that was based on storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, the storytelling skill set that I learned in journalism school was more critical to what we do today than uh formal culinary education would have been
0: yeah isn't that um, interesting
1: it, it is yeah um, yeah and, you know, i mean sometimes i i will mentor culinary students and i'll go give lectures at culinary schools and they'll say some things like well what's the best advice that you have for us to stay in the industry and sometimes i'll just say like, get the hell out for a while. And, <laughs> and, and honestly, it's like they, they're like, what do you mean by that? And I, I think like food is one of those things where you're going to be a lot better at it if you give yourself space to feed the passion that brought you here in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many people get into a food-based career, whether that's farming or restaurants or whatever, and the circumstances of the job become so hectic that we kind of forget what drove us and what we used to be interested in. And, uh, we kind of get wrapped up in the sort of, you know, toxicity of restaurant culture and long grueling hours and and everything else. And it, it ruins the passion that we had that made us good at what we do. Um, so that's sort of, you know, a thing that I think was very important was to just step away from food for a really long time. Um, and then, you know, when we were, we were actually, you know, we were both working on kind of nine to five jobs and we decided when the opportunity came up with, within Amy's family to inherit the farm, we sort of said, well, maybe this is the, you know, the chance that we always wanted to kind of get back in, into food and to actually, you know, have a, a place to sort of base ourselves out of too was, right. was important.
0: Right. And Amy, what were you doing before you came back?
2: I had sort of a, an experience that Mike was describing where I think I got kind of burnt out on food because growing up on a farm, um, with a big garden every summer, we canned a lot. And so, mm-hmm. uh, f- processing food was a main pastime <laughs> of my of childhood and growing up. And so whenever I went to college, I never thought that I would get into a food business. Um... So I went into, I got a undergraduate degree in geology and a minor in geography, and then I ended up going to law school, Wow! Um, which they always tell you, you can do so much with a law degree, but I like to joke that you can do so much despite a law degree, <laughs> because I, I did not enjoy the practice. Um, and so uh, with Mike, um, when we got together, his passion for food and cooking kind of started to to turn my interest back towards food prep a good bit. And so I kind of got back into it. Um, And then whenever this opportunity came up, like he said, we sort of jumped at it Mm -hmm. and it's been a lot of work, but it's been pretty great so far.
0: That's awesome. So when you first went back to the farm, what were, did you start farm to table right away or what did you do first?
1: <clears throat> um well sort of so we didn't i mean we so what we did is we were we were living in this uh town about three hours away or so and then when the when the farm when we got the farm it was in such bad shape that we actually had to live in a town closer and rent an apartment for two years oh, just so we could kind of like fix it up and get it livable enough I mean, because you know you think about 20 years gone by or so, 15 or 20 years or whatever it was that nobody had lived in the house. There were just, you know, like mice and, you know, it just was not in good shape. Raccoons.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. 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 Right.
1: And, and there was some stuff that we just had to do before we could even live here. I mean, we just Mm -hmm. sort of had to like totally redo the, uh, all the electric wiring and we had to like, you know, get water hooked up again and everything. And, um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we, yeah, we had two solid years of just basically like, you know, lots of trips to the landfill and, um, you know, a lot of just the sort of like bare bones structural work. But, uh, in the meantime, when we did live in the apartment, we did start, uh, kind of a little bit of a side hustle doing sort of uh, guest chef nights and pop up dinners. Uh, and we started to market ourselves as lost Creek farm actually uh, even before we you know we lived out here because we were we weren't really like sourcing anything from the farm yet but it was part of the branding scheme for us kind of early on because we knew we had a little bit of a longer longer term goal was to be out here doing things so we yeah we started marketing ourselves as lost Creek farm and we did a few. Kind of fun, just just pretty informal dinners at first, just around and um, and then uh, yeah, I mean once we did move out to the farm, we kind of really upped our game um, in terms of being able to say that we were doing a farm to table uh, initiative with ingredients actually sourced from the farm. You know, I mean, be- living here made it such that we could uh, grow things in the garden, we could do more foraging here and. And truly have like a Lost Creek Farm farm farm-to-table experience.
0: And uh, and is the food that you cook um, traditional Appalachian food, or how does that
1: work? Um, That's a good question, and there's not really a great answer for that. I mean, but there so there are a few sort of different um, approaches to what kind of defines both traditional cuisine and Appalachian cuisine, right? Um, so, I mean, I think what we say most of the time is it's sort of the food that we cook is heavily influenced by Appalachian traditions. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we make that, you know, wouldn't really be considered traditional by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's influenced by certain traditions. Um, so I'll give you an example of that is there's this big root vegetable that used to be grown by a lot of people here called the Hanover Turnip. Hmm. And, uh, the Hanover Turnip, uh, we're, we, it's great. We were just, we were editing a podcast segment about the Hanover Turnip earlier today. So it's like this big gnarly thing that though it's called a turnip, it's kind of closer in size to, uh, sorry, a rutabaga. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's really gnarly. So the old newspapers, we found some old newspapers, one of them sort of says that it's like, uh, you know, it's like 15 pounds and the roots look like the tentacles of an octopus. And then there's another one that's like, yeah, it's like the size of a child's head. And right. so, you know, we have this farmer that we work with and he's really into these handovers and he's into like bringing them back. He grows them from these heirloom seeds from his wife's family. And uh-huh. and the way they used to eat them is they would make these handovers, they would boil them and they would eat them with cornbread and bacon drippings. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like yeah. we took that hand over, that root vegetable and we made the mash that they typically make of it but we turned that mash into an ice cream and we made like a cornbread pudding with a bacon jam oh. uh, and we you know so we that was a dish that i would say is like you know not traditional but it's heavily inspired influenced mm-hmm. by this kind of story of the tradition um mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of stuff that we do in terms of our cuisine that's it sort of typifies traditions that are here and have been part of the community, but most people would not, especially most people outside of Appalachia, would not say our Appalachian traditions, like Spanish sausage or Lebanese cuisine, or any of the things that kind of make up this uh, community that is actually quite diverse. Um, that you know have have sort of you know shaped West Virginia's history but kind of goes against that sort of like stereotypical Scots Irish all white Appalachian trope that that we often see outside the region.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I was doing a boot camp in West Virginia and I had somebody in there who was this descendant of a slave community uh-huh. A community of slaves, right? Uh-huh. And they, she was a descendant of them, and and of the, and she said, you know, people don't don't even realize that there were black people in Appalachia, right? Right. Like, like right. they yeah. have no idea. Uh-huh. Never mind Lebanese people, right? Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Right. So so you're bringing forth all these tra- traditions.
1: Yeah, and and as well as the. Right. The storytelling behind it, you know, and that's the that's the more important part of it, because we could mm-hmm. serve Lebanese food. But if we don't sort of accompany that with the story about there being this huge influx of Lebanese and Syrian immigrants in like the 1920s, then and why they were here, you sort of, you know, in coal camps and logging camps, then, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't really doesn't really tell us much. So um, for us, you know, we do a heck of a lot of work. That's off the farm and out of the kitchen, just in terms of historical research and, you know, I- interviewing tradition bearers and collecting oral histories, um, because that truly is the key ingredient to mm-hmm. a story-based cuisine.
0: Right, right. So, so, um, so you you shared the story of the, the the Hanover turnip. What are <laughs> what are some other favorites?
1: Um, lots of beans. Lots have, of beans, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there's a lot of different varieties of beans that uh, are here. Um, and one of the reasons for that is, you know, West Virginia is not a flat state and we're not a, a typically known as a commercial agriculture center. Mm-hmm. So what we do have, though, is we have this vast network, this kind of hodgepodge of very small farms, mostly gardens. Mm-hmm. So, with that, that is very conducive to people stewarding lots of different kinds of vegetables. You know, so mm-hmm. there's like a lot of isolation, geographic isolation, yeah. and and that makes it so that you know you have like a lot more diversity in seeds here than you do in other places where there's a lot of kind of monoculture and um, you know a lot more sort of like big farming operations than than what we have here. So people love their. Um, you know, individual varieties of beans that have been passed down through the generations. The same for tomatoes, I would say.
2: Yeah, tomatoes, Mm -hmm. corn varieties. Corn,
1: right. Um,
0: Isn't that fascinating? Because I think of like you know, this is sort of a metaphor for the whole food system thing, but, but at some point along the way, we decided it was easier than saving seeds. It was easier to just order them every year from burpee, you know, or somebody, right. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and that is one of the tragedies of this, uh, of this, the food system. I mean, we were very lucky here that we have people who have saved so many seeds. And I think the reason that people have saved so many seeds is because they've attached um, a sentiment to those seeds that are associated with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's what's driven them to save the seeds. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying about storytelling, because there was a time like right after World War II, when we started to really industrialize the agriculture system and really tried to sell people who had been longtime farmers on this idea that we have this new kind of like industrial, like very chemical-based method of agriculture. And a lot of them bought into it and I can totally see why, right? Like farming is not easy. So right, if there's this right. promise that, you know, we've got this new fertilizer or we've got this pesticide and herbicide, and we we can we've got these new seeds that have crazy high yields and they're resistant to everything like that is appealing Mm -hmm. to people who have grown food but what they don't have with them is this sort of association with with people and with families so when we talk to old-timers and people give us seeds i mean they can they can talk about the many generations that have stewarded these seeds um but we also have stories of people like in our own families who, you know, stopped saving seeds and started planting commercial hybrids in the 1950s or so because that was like marketed to them as the easy thing that's going to get you lots of beans and tomatoes. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's crazy to think how many seeds are lost and how lucky we are to just be able to have these very few that are still here. I think the statistic I was looking at this the other day, just in the U.S. alone, we've lost over 95% of our seeds just in the past, you know, or sorry, in the past hundred years, I think.
0: Wow. Um, Yeah, and um, all that variety that, you know, I think about this, you know, can you imagine what it would have taken like the 1800s or the 1700s you're gonna now you're a european and you're gonna come to the new world right mm-hmm. and you get your mm-hmm. one little trunk and what are you going to bring with you and seeds came right right so absolutely yeah yeah so people brought their seeds with them and so we got we got this incredible diversity of, of um, seeds from all over europe when that was happening
1: yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll talk to people, um, like those handovers, those were brought by relatives. The family, Laura says, you know, it's kind of like either in the pockets of their clothes, they brought um. you know, cause those handover seeds are, are tiny or, or maybe in their luggage. But also we, we interview, uh, we have interviewed a couple of old timers from the Italian community here and, you know, more than a hundred years ago, their parents brought seeds with them and, um, you know, they're setting themselves up to be able to pass these seeds on to the next generation. Uh, again, it's like I'm sure there's sort of a nice hybridized blight resistant variety of Italian paste tomato that they, right. could, they could you know, have their kids grow that now. But it's about the specific seed that was brought by their family that mm-hmm. they want to keep alive.
0: Well, and I bet over time with enough generations of this, those seeds have sort of um, have Select it, you know, natural selection has happened and they're mm-hmm. kind of acclimated to where they are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, when you when you talk to heirloom seed savers who really geek out about this stuff, that's what they'll, they'll tell you is that the heirloom seeds are very good at adapting to a, a specific place. Mm-hmm. Um so
2: yeah, they're, and and are a hope to keep up with climate change,
1: right? As right. Well yeah, that because of their sure.
2: adaptation. Yeah, yeah, because of their yeah their ability to adapt. Mm-hmm.
0: Isn't that fascinating? It's mm-hmm. fascinating. I mean, and mm-hmm. all and that's why people could bring seeds from Europe and and land wherever they landed, right? right. And have mm-hmm. them some portion of them succeed.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so interesting because a lot of the. Um, seeds brought here from europe not a lot but some of them are uh like tomatoes are indigenous to north america north and Mm. south america and so those seeds were taken from here originally (laughs) and taken back to europe and they became so important that they were brought back yeah isn't that something
1: yeah it's like a lot of the the pole bean varieties um are indigenous to north america and then you have things like lima beans and tomatoes that are indigenous to South America. But when we ha- talk to like the Italians who are growing tomatoes and beans that they consider Italian varieties here, or we have a friend from Turkey who grows, he has a seed farm in West Virginia and he grows Turkish, you know, tomatoes and all kinds of beans. And it's like this is the fascinating story about how seeds have traveled all over the world and are in some cases coming back to where they started. Um, and it's, it is cool. Cause you know, in the, in each of those seeds, it's like you, you hold a seed in your hand and there is just like so much history in that one seed about, um, people interacting with each other and forging new connections and, and ultimately building community together to, you know, pass along the seed, but also the sort of knowledge it takes to grow the seed and to turn it into something delicious. And, um, it's that kind of, you know, cultural exchange that we kind of hope to keep fostering through some of this work and through kind of exposing some of these stories.
0: Right. Well, and just people and memories, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like I remember my grandma cooking things, right. Mm And, and, um, you know she was she was german so a lot of german food right so mm-hmm. i can never have like german style potato salad with vinegar and <laughs> and bacon and not think of right.
2: her right yeah
0: yeah that in her um with a scissors sitting on her br- in her breezeway, you know, which was a porch between a house and a in a garage. We don't have mm. those anymore, but we used to out here. And she would she would kill flies with a scissors, like clipping <laughs> them, like she was oh, like man. fast. That's fast. <laughs> That's really fast. <laughs> That's yeah, really I'm... fast. Yeah, <laughs> she was amazing. Yeah, no, crazy. Um, <laughs> crazy yeah so so you started I mean did you start with this whole you know storytelling thing right from the beginning when you started cooking for people is that just like no it it started together or is it evolved I think
1: I think a little bit of it was uh you know there was a little bit of that kind of harmony there because just our our interest in in both the food and storytelling but I think we you know at first we um were sort of you know seeing ourselves more as just kind of cooks and we didn't necessarily think about the stories quite as much but then um what kind of happened around the same time as us getting started is there was this whole sort of like national um I don't even know what to call it it was just interesting it was kind of a media phenomenon I guess of um Appalachian food sort of getting thrust into the national spotlight and getting mm. kind of classified as a trend. Um, and there were some people from Appalachia who were certainly part of that trend, but a lot of what we were seeing was there was actually uh, like a lot of um, Appalachian food that was being talked about, being written about being celebrated was taking place outside of Appalachia, mm-hmm. um, you know, in places like New York city or DC or, Or wherever. And, um, you know, a lot of times we would see lists in magazines that would be like, oh, yeah, the, you know, the top 10 trendiest foods of 2016 and uh, Appalachian food would be in there. But what they would sort of consider Appalachian food would be, um, you know, basically a very simplistic version of what we would consider Appalachian food. You know, Mm -hmm. it kind of it fits the stereotype. Right. And... It's like, you know, heavy, greasy food that these people eat. In fact, one of the funniest things, I remember there was a – I can't remember which magazine this was in, but there was like a top 10 trendy foods list to watch. And I forget what the year was, but it it was like, um, you know, the top 10 trendiest foods are, you know, like cooking over a fire, like heirloom vegetables and um, uh, like pickled things. And there was like preserved fish. And then the the last one was like, and while most of these trends are focused on healthy foods, there's also Appalachian cuisine <laughs> as, as a trend. And like every other thing on that list was something that we consider like quintessentially Appalachian. Appalachian yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, so it was just like all this stuff was happening and we were like, oh, my God, there's like there's all this kind of um, talk about Appalachian food, but there's no like storytelling in it. And there's. You know, and, and we we sort of sought out to separate ourselves from all these people that were being talked about as cooking Appalachian food. So we said, what what's the thing that we have that they don't? And, you know, if there's a chef in New York City who's cooking like biscuits and gravy and saying it's Appalachian inspired, like what's the story behind it? You know, and uh, we started. So that was really what drove us to connect certain foods to stories, because we knew that that was the thing that, you know, gave us the marketing advantage over anybody else was that, you know, anybody can cook these things with the ingredients themselves, like, Mm -hmm. but not everybody can connect it to people and culture through stories the same way.
0: Right. Well, and it it wasn't, actually real right that the, they were exactly. cooking the yeah. mythology of what right. Appalachian food was instead right. of what actually what it was too right. so there was that gap too <laughs> right right so okay so that that was all starting to come together then when you when you were still doing pop-ups right yeah 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 mm-hmm. and who would come like like to your pop-ups was it mostly um, people from DC or,
1: uh, no, I mean, at first it was, um, well, we, we were doing them in, uh, this town of Thomas at first. It was a little bit of a tourist town. A lot of actually, a lot of tourists from DC would, would come, um, not necessarily at that, at that time, the pop-ups were small, so it wasn't necessarily that people would come just for the pop-up, but it was just kind of something else in town that was happening. And I think, um, we were always surprised from the very first one of like the, the the crowd size that would come out for that. And I think what it taught us early on was just that there's a lot of value in doing something that is new and fresh and different um, because, you know, the restaurant experience is uh, something that people were very much used to. But this whole idea of a pop-up dinner was like, you know, like people had not really right. done that before. Right. So um, at least here. Right. So... Yeah, and then we started to kind of do some traveling and do some other dinners out outside of West Virginia, actually, in, in places like uh, Knoxville. And then we would go to DC, or we would go to Pittsburgh, or wherever. And um, it was it was very cool, you know, because people people always surprised us at how that we you know where where they would come from, and there was always like somebody who actually a few people. There's always somebody who was like you know, have some kind of tie back, maybe they're from West Virginia or their mm-hmm. family's from West Virginia, they would always find us somehow. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, I mean, we were doing that for three or four years before we ever had a, an event here at the farm. And, mm-hmm. you know, having an event here at the farm was, uh, it was cool just to take it beyond like, you know, packing all of our stuff up and traveling and going to another venue and actually being able to, uh, sort of operate in our own venue out here
0: right right and do do local people come because I'm assuming I mean maybe this is a bad assumption but it's fairly expensive right to go to one of your dinners
1: it is but um, we have lots of local people that come mm-hmm. um, it's a mix and, and yeah. really
2: when you think about it it's not that expensive for what you get right out mm-hmm. of because our normal, dinner is like a six course tasting uh uh, menu and then we discuss every course so it's sort of like dinner and a show right yeah right yeah
1: i mean the people that come i i think it's like it's expensive but i think you you have to keep yourself from making some kind of comparative analysis like you can't really i feel like sometimes with food People get kind of caught up in looking at sort of like how relatively expensive things are. Right, and right. It's like, well, compared to what, you know, like compared right. to Applebee's, like, is it, I don't, I don't right. know. Like if you went to Applebee's and you got six, you know, if you, if you went to like Applebee's and you got like two appetizers and a salad and then some like terrible entree and a dessert. You're probably paying like seventy five dollars, you know, right. and or more, yeah. or more, and it's garbage. It's totally right. garbage. So when you come to like a pop up dinner, um, yeah, and it's just like really good food, and it's um,
2: a nice atmosphere. It's a nice
1: atmosphere, <laughs> and it is a thing that you know people have put all this time and, and effort into. Um, it's not. It's not really expensive when you think about it, and I think like our clientele is you know, I would say it's like 80% kind of, um, like working like middle-class people. Cause I think people, middle-class people here, working people understand the value of labor. Mm -hmm. They understand sort of the, the facade of, um, like cheapness, I think in food and Mm -hmm. understand that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing about it that's almost like it's almost like the people who would save up for a concert otherwise.
0: Right. 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 Nobody
1: would have, like, if you're, like, really into a band, it's, like, like, nothing these days to pay, you know, like, 75 bucks to go to the arena and, like, right. see your favorite band play. But, you know, if people are kind of into food, like, we are, we're, we're it's more like an entertainment experience almost sure. than, than, like, a dining experience. Yeah. So, right.
2: But we have a good mix of local and um, out-of-state people who come mm-hmm. yeah. to our dinners. So, mm-hmm. it's... I mean,
0: I I would assume that there's, it, it would be a source of pride for local people to see what you do with, with Appalachian food.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, sometimes when people see like the, the price tag, they, they don't, they don't really consider like what else goes into it. So you always sort of have like you know, people who sort of look at it at first glance and, you know, like what, what the hell are these people doing in Lost Vegas? Mm-hmm. like, you know, charging this much. But I think once you sort of get into not just the analysis of what it takes and what it costs to put on a pop-up event, but the other products that we offer. I mean, the food is one thing that we do. You know, the education work, the storytelling work, the podcast, the mm-hmm. sort of food media that we've produced here. That's all kind of part of of what is sort of more accessible, I think to Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people that, you know, might not have the money to come to a pop-up dinner. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, I think you're right, but it's just like, uh, you know, it's not, we're just not exclusively a food business that, you know, people pay a lot of money to come to. We, we offer a lot more beyond the dinner table.
0: So one of the things that when I first met you, I think you talked about, um, uh, this is a sort of a, a cultural phenomenon of shame around the food that, yeah. you know, like there's sh- people are ashamed of their food because it, it grew out of poverty.
1: Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, this is something that uh, Appalachia has dealt with uh, for a long time, um, goes hand in hand with the sort of like rise of extractive industry and in, capitalism, it's actually, you know, it's a tactic of the ca- extractive industry to sort of, sort of keep the people who live in that place from feeling like they can control their own destiny. And mm-hmm. one way that they've done that is to sort of, you know, not just create the conditions of poverty, but to create uh, stigma around those conditions. So, yeah, um, and a,
2: a mindset of like, not Being good enough, not having like needing to work for somebody else because what you have isn't good enough. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that. Yeah. Right. So that that idea that, you know, people are shamed because of their own existence, feeling like the only way that anything is going to get better is if a big company comes in, gives them something that they don't already have that kind of reinforces, you know, this like cycle of dependence on, ex, on on extractive industry. So, mm-hmm. uh, the way that manifests in people's minds is it, it creates a lot of, um, shame around poverty and it creates a lot of shame around the foods that are associated with poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes, you know, we'll serve something on a plate that's like chow chow, for instance, which is this like pickled, vegetable relish or, you know, it might be country ham or it might be anything else. And sometimes we'll have people come out up to us afterwards and just say, like, you know, I, I decided basically when I became a teenager and moved away that I would never eat this again because I always associated it with the hard times. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes what is the most special thing about our work, the most sort of satisfying work is when people come up to us and they do tell us those stories about, the foods that they associated with uh, poverty and they had said they would never eat it again, but we put it on a plate and it's sort of the first time that they had thought about it in a way that makes them proud to go back and not just eat it, but to like maybe make it themselves and to, uh, Mm -hmm. to really kind of own the narrative around it. And I think the important consideration here is that through the storytelling we try to make it very clear that poverty is not the thing that you know we should be ashamed of like there's no there's no shame in poverty especially when it's like the 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 conditions of um extractive industry and like capitalism that got people in these situations, right? Like, like they've been taught that it's their fault. It's like a personal failing that they're poor. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but for us, it's like, we use the storytelling, uh, to make the case that it's not that you should be ashamed that you were poor. You should be very proud that with very, very few resources we got through these hard times making things that were very creative and very innovative and very delicious and, and very
2: healthy and
1: healthy. Yeah. So when, when we take those narratives of shame that people had been conditioned to associate with certain foods and turn them into narratives of pride, really like it totally changes the way that people have a relationship with food and with their own hmm. cultural heritage. Um, so that has been, Important work because you cannot establish like a place based and a cultural based food system if people are ashamed of the food mm-hmm. that they associate with their family and their culture of place. Right, right. Because then um, they
0: never go back to that food otherwise.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And you know, and we see this like you see the lingering effects of this uh, in things like the way that the West Virginia the Department of Tourism does marketing, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they have a website that says like the top five dishes in West Virginia. And it's all, it's all like seafood, you know, seafood, seafood. Yeah. It's like, like five, of the, you know, four out of five dishes are like seafood. And, yeah. and, you know, this is like a constant thing that we, we have to sort of battle this like idea that, you know, in order to convince people outside of West Virginia that we are, like on their level of quality that we have to offer something that is typically not thought of as West Virginian or Appalachian because there is that like stigma in our own minds with Mm -hmm. like, we we fear what people will think about us when we market ourselves as being Appalachian.
0: Right. Right. So what are some of the foods that you've um, sort of, I don't know, resurrected for people? Chow Chow, you
1: mentioned Chow Chow. Yeah, Chow Chow is one of them. Um, I remember some stories about country ham from some people. One of the ones that I think was most memorable for us is the um, there was a dinner that we did down in Charleston, and we served this thing, tomato aspic, which is basically like gelatin and like pureed tomatoes. So <laughs> like, you know, tomato sauce or tomato soup or something, and you like make this. and And, and it's a very regional i mean like even in west virginia there's like there's so much diversity in the food that like some people have never heard of tomato aspic but i got this recipe book from my grandma and there are seven tomato aspic recipes Hmm. more much more than anything else but um you know so this is like a food that i think the way i like to think of people eating tomato aspic is that in the winter time you know you can like recreate the flavors of summer so you would take preserved tomatoes and um puree them right or have a mm-hmm. tomato sauce that you can then you cook that up with some gelatin and maybe like i i think it's cool like put it in a sort of like cylinder thing or kind of cut it into discs and then it's almost i mean it's as close as you can kind of get to having a slice of fresh tomato from your garden mm, yeah in in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Um, But for a lot of people, this is a symbol of hard times, right? And poverty. So we had, there were like three people that were like in tears at this one dinner because they were talking about this stigma that lived on in their, in their families. And, you know, there was people that were like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, my mom made this and it's something that we ate not because we wanted to, but because we had to. Mm-hmm. and that was the thing that they always remembered about tomato aspic. But here we are presenting tomato aspic on a plate kind of in a nice, you know, pretty way, mm-hmm. but also telling a story about it that it was the first time they had ever heard a story about this food that didn't, like, make them want to, you know, cringe mm-hmm. and run away. Yeah. So yeah. it totally flipped the switch, and it it made it flipped the way that they think about tomato aspic and now you know it's like they might remember you know the hard times but they'll they'll not think of it exclusively as uh, a product of shame mm-hmm. right
0: right right that's amazing and then was it you or told me or maybe maybe it was you amy who said that when you were growing up you remember cu- curing ham on the on the washing machine is was that you yeah
2: <laughs> Yeah, that was me. Uh, in the winter time, my mom would go get a ham, and like that was cured from that right. okay. Yeah. and bring it in. And um, she would, yeah, she would keep it on the dryer. And I remember always be sewing, always being so embarrassed that we had this ham because then she'd cover it up with a towel. You know, she'd go in and cut off all the ham slices that we would have for dinner, uh-huh. and you needed to soak it a little bit because it's so salty right um, but it would just stay good so she'd like cover it back up uh-huh and but i do remember just having that ham on the dryer but but now i think how awesome it is that you don't need a refrigerator to save meat <laughs> right you can just cure it
1: yeah and actually i mean this is this is important the, the ham story is so important for our business because we went to spain um, this is back a few years before we moved to the farm, kind of when we were just sort of toying with the idea of like returning to have a food business. And, um, you know, we went to Spain and a lot of the foods that we have been kind of conditioned to be ashamed of here are this incredible source of pride for everybody in Spain, you know, and, and ham is one of those. Right. Uh-huh. There's like there's like I mean, Spanish jamón is is like there's so it's like the source of national pride. And we're like, well, it's the same shit that we're like <laughs>
2: embarrassed, sca- embarrassed up. of yeah. here.
1: <laughs> and the difference is that, you know, we have an economic system that has conditioned us to be um so, you know, embarrassed about all of this stuff. So it's like it goes back to like when there was when we got electricity in West Virginia, like there was an advertising campaign of shame, uh, you know, if you didn't have the newest refrigerator, if you mm. didn't have like, so these were all class symbols, right? So like, right. so, y- you know, of course we're not making country ham anymore because we want to show off the fact that we have, you know, like refrigerators and we don't have to preserve our food and salt because that's what we did when we didn't have any money. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it was like, so us we went to Spain and we were like, man, we could come back to West Virginia and try to look at some of these same foods and, and just think about, you know, like what it would look like to, you know, to talk about some of these foods in a different way. And, um, you know, and that's, I don't know. I don't know if we would have been as inspired to, to do this, if we would have gone over there and like seen the way that people, um, take such great pride, not just in certain foods like ham, but also just in the food industry, in general, you know, like mm-hmm. you go to a restaurant and the server at a restaurant is like it, they're so proud that that is their career. Whereas right. here, it's like we treat people who are servers in restaurants like it's a stepping stone to the, quote, real job.
0: Right. You know? Right.
1: And uh, yeah. I and mean, so so different the way that yeah. the different people and places and cultures approach food.
0: Yeah. Well, on that note. So um, how did Anthony Bourdain find out about you?
1: Um, well, I don't know exactly, but you know, they, we, we were kind of known at the time and, uh, you know, and they, this is in
0: pop-up time or were you back on your farm by then? Oh,
1: this was pop-up time. I mean, okay. yeah, we, we didn't start, I mean, we, well, we were living at the farm,
0: right? right? Okay. But we, weren't,
1: we weren't doing any business here yet. Yeah. Um, it yeah. was just last summer was actually the first time we'd ever had any business uh, okay. on the farm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, we
2: were not ready. Yes. No,
1: we were, <laughs> we were not ready. Um,
2: uh, but, but yeah, we guess um, they hired, his team hired like a couple local scouts to kind of uh, inform them on people that they should get in contact with. And uh, I guess they, somebody in that group.
1: Yeah, they, they told us that they had heard about us from a lot of different people. And hmm. uh, so it just, you know, I mean, it, it made some sense, um, but it was it was funny. I mean, it was like like what I was telling you about before with the uh, division of tourism marketing seafood places. Like there were you know there were people who were like they had had restaurants for thirty years, you know, like a you know French bistro or something, and
0: uh, right, they're like, right.
1: well, why didn't you come to me? My restaurant's been around for longer, and it's like, why the hell would you come to West Virginia? Right. And we're like, well, there's a mediocre French restaurant that we got like <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, it's just like this idea of marketing something based on place and distinctive qualities attached to place is is so kind of foreign here,
0: right? Um, well, and and but and then the connection with culture was so yeah. much a part of that show of right. his right. show, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow he through his scouts he found you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And what was that like? <laughs> um,
1: I mean, it was very, very stressful because like Amy said, we weren't ready in terms of the house. Our house was way under construction at the time. Right. You know, we didn't have like a, a ceiling or a floor on the kitchen yet. So it was like plywood floor. And and we were like, oh, man, this gives us a deadline. We've got like three weeks. Oh, to- no. <laughs> we should- <laughs>
0: Because um, Anthony Bourdain's entire TV crew is coming, right? Oh yeah, I right, right, is, right, yeah, yeah, yeah right. And yeah. they, were, you know, we
1: didn't know. They were like, "Oh, you, you'd be great if we like get a couple, you know, some scenes of you guys cooking in the kitchen." And we we're like, "God, we don't, oh no, kitchen, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> so, <laughs> but it, in a way, that was good because we got the floor down and we got yeah. the ceiling in before that happened. But we right. didn't really get a lot of sleep in the weeks leading up to it, and we, um,
2: yeah, we were really you know. tired.
1: Um, Yeah, we we also, we have a a well here. That's how we get our water. And it tends to run a little bit dry in the fall. So, um, you know, his TV crew was big. We had a lot of guests. We had, you know, a lot of people using our water. And we ran out of water at like 2 in the afternoon. Oh, no. (laughs) So, yeah, they actually had to have one of their people drive into the nearest town and get like, you know, 100-gallon jugs of water. which we We still have some of those in our basement that we keep as souvenirs. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is a, a so so he comes with a crew or he came with a crew oh
1: yeah, yeah. i mean they show up the he, the crew is probably like what 12 people or so yeah. they you know some of them show up at seven in the morning
0: uh-huh 6 30 uh, yeah 6 right? 30 they
1: wanted to get the sunrise, you know, you know, the sunrise shots and they they hang around all day and then you know and that uh, tony shows up at like 4 30 or so and mm-hmm. uh you know we have dinner at 6 30 and he stays for a few hours and then the crew's here for a few more hours Mm -hmm. um, so
0: that's a long day so so uh, what did you talk about
1: um you know we talked about so much and i think one of the things that is hard about an experience like that is you talk about so much that is important to you knowing that it's
0: going to get edited.
1: Right. Out. Cause yeah. it's, like, you know, I mean, cause it's like a six minute TV segment, which is right long for TV, but it, you know, it's, right. uh, you know, we, we had like a two and a half hour conversation at dinner and it was, you know, about all the stuff that we're talking about now and, you know, about just sort of guns and politics and uh, all this stuff. I mean, he, he was on before he came to see us, he was, on a trip through the southern West Virginia coal fields and it was just so eye opening for him and he had a lot yeah. that he wanted to talk about about that and sort of you know how that has sort of changed his mind about West Virginia to some extent. So mm-hmm. yeah, but it, but it was a I mean it was definitely an emotional roller coaster sort of for the next nine months of just like not knowing what how it was going to be edited or what was going right, to be right um, put into it and it, it ended up, you know, like being fine. I mean, we, we sort of caught ourselves in the middle of a lot of kind of competing opinions about how the show sort of ended up because there were a lot of people who, um, did not like the fact that it focused so much on relatively poor areas of Mm -hmm. Southern West Virginia. Um, But, you know, we really felt that, you know, when you listen to those people who were portrayed in those areas of the state, uh, that it was the first time that they felt that anybody came here from national media and really let them kind of tell a story that humanized them because they were so used to national media showing up and having it just sort of reinforce the stereotype. Right. um, And that was important. And I think like a lot of it was just that, just like we, we we've been talking about a lot of the reactions to that show were from people who are, they have these deep insecurities about class and poverty and they, they did not want to have a show that um, sort of made people seem like they were poor right. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be associated with poor people. So, right. um, yeah, it was like, it was not, it was not necessarily fun to be like on the receiving end of a lot of like complaints that people had about yeah. how uh, West Virginia was, yeah. was portrayed, but we, we liked it. I mean, we, we were, we loved connecting with people in the Southern West Virginia coalfields and hearing from them. About,
0: yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Isn't that interesting? I mean, um, and, and then, then it was also, it, it, I mean, your episode show aired not, I, I don't know. It was one of the last shows, right?
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, so that was, it was like late April. Um, mm-hmm. And then he died in June.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that was so tragic.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Yeah. But yeah, it was great to be a part of it. It was yeah. really stressful, but it was overall a really wonderful experience and it really helped our business a lot. And, yeah, to oh, be have, yeah. involved.
1: Right. And I have to say, we we also, aside from the, you know, the economic benefits of the promo for our business, like we, we've made some you know kind of people friends with people that i'm sure are going to be lifelong friends who were either part of his uh crew or kind of associated with the show somehow or 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 people that we just would not have gotten to meet had it not been for for that experience so right we, yeah
0: right i miss his show i miss that that sort of cuz he too took this food connection of food and culture so mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm so much to heart. I mean, that was right. what that show was about. So
2: yeah. Yeah. He's such a great storyteller. He is sure. a
0: great storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. So, so what, what are you up to now since it's kind of hard? I mean, have you been doing any pop-ups given COVID or?
1: No. I mean, we, yeah. we basically have uh, I mean, nobody the at the front, farm. front. Yeah. We've basically canceled um, everything for the whole year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we, yeah, it's been. I mean, it's been a rough year actually. Going back to last October, um, we had this just unfortunate kind of string of um, health issues. Like my my mom got cancer, and my dad had a massive heart attack. Both like within the span of a couple of weeks, and, oh, no. and we we had yeah. to we had to cancel the rest of our events. From October on last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we already had kind of a lot to make up. And then, you know, we were very excited about going into this year. We had a lot of momentum from last year. This like New York Times article had just come out about oh, us, and we were, like had all this interest from people from all over the country. And then COVID hit, oh, no. and you know you're not a, you know we can't get groups of people together. Um, you know because my family is so immunocompromised, we don't really want to risk anything. So we right. just like canceled the whole year, and we've been working on kind of developing more of our education curriculum. We've been uh, you know, producing our podcast, We've been working on some book proposal stuff. We have plenty to do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like,
0: <laughs> well, and it, it's interesting, right? It's the storytelling part of what you're doing. That is yeah. what you're doing now. So what yeah. is your podcast called? So people know,
1: uh, yeah. So the podcast is called the pickle shelf radio hour, and it is not a podcast like this. It's more kind of long form narrative journalism style, Mm -hmm. uh, storytelling. Um, it's a storytelling podcast. Uh, it was actually started with, uh, me and a friend of ours who was also a journalist at the time he was living in Washington, DC. And he's, he's originally from Poland. Um, so he was covering Appalachia and we sort of started this whole project, um, to kind of be, uh, mostly about Appalachian food, but kind of, um, framed in some way with, uh, two journalists from very different backgrounds. Um, but then when we kind of started producing the podcast, he had another job offer took that. So he's kind of remained part of the podcast, but it's mostly been a lost Creek farm podcast. And, uh, so it's, it is very driven by the people in our community. Um, and you know, the people that we get to meet through our work. Telling stories about food traditions, about seed saving. Actually, the episode that we're producing now is about seed saving, and mm-hmm. it will probably be released sometime next week. Um, the thing about this long form storytelling is, it takes a hell of a lot of time to piece together and to edit. And, oh right, um,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: forever. So we, so you know, we we don't. It's just the two of us. You know, if you listen to one of these. Shows Like if you listen to this American life or something, you listen to right. the end, they, they were like read off 25 names of people who <laughs> produced the show. Right. But for, right. for it to be like the two of us, we, we put one out every, every two months, and uh-huh. um, you know,
0: but it's so. almost like an oral book. Right. Which is yeah. so appropriate right. for right. Appalachia. Right. Like yeah. there's something really, really right about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because storytelling is a part of your culture.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's important for us because, you know, we, we want to offer things to the community that's not just the opportunity to come to, mm-hmm. like, you know, an $80 pop-up dinner. Right, right. It's, right. So it's nice to, to be able to put something out that everyone can listen to and participate in.
0: That's awesome. So hopefully dinners at the farm will come back next year. Yeah, that's yeah. the hope-
1: yeah, hopefully. I mean, um, it's it's funny the timing of COVID because this time last year we were talking to people like you about how to get a, a kitchen built and how right, to you know, get right. a brick and mortar facility, facility, but yeah. But this year, it's it's an odd, uh, you know, very awkward sort of silver lining to grapple with is this fact that we did not actually have. Uh, any of the infrastructure seriously, together seriously right because, yeah. you know how the hell would we be making mortgage payments on a uh,
0: right on <laughs> on, a, on you know, an addition yeah, with a yeah. commercial kitchen yeah no there's there's the timing was good for you and and honestly just all of the all of the content you're developing will be mm-hmm. really good i mean mm-hmm. it what you do is so thoughtful and so unique in the the approach that you're taking that um you know, I, I I mean you were getting people who were signing up from dinners from all over the country, right? Like people were gonna uh, come to Appalachia just to have oh dinner yeah. with
1: you. I yeah. mean just for just for this year alone, we had people from thirteen different states yeah. signed up, you know, to come here for a dinner. And that's that is a huge shift from the traditional model of how food has like served tourism in West Virginia. We we've traditionally looked at at food is this very utilitarian thing that somebody just sort of needs to experience if they come here for something else, right? It's like people right, come, come here for whitewater rafting or mm-hmm. for something and then they're gonna need to eat while they're here. But right. this is like food tourism where people are coming to West Virginia because of us. Right. And while they're here, they're gonna go whitewater rafting or they're gonna do the other <laughs> yes. thing, but, but it's the food that is actually drawing them here as opposed to the other way around, which is how we've always approached to food and tourism.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. It yeah, is. it's just fascinating. Well, and, you know, I do know a couple of um, farm-to-table restaurants on farms here mm-hmm. um, that have um, have been open this summer, um, yeah. and they've – and it's been – outdoors. I mean, you know, really social distance and really outdoors and they're, and they're really not making money at it, but they, you know, but people have been coming. It's kind of like, you know, the, the explosion of people buying meat directly from farms. It's Mm. like people, this, there's something about this COVID thing that is driving people to want to have a connection back to their farm.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, and I feel it. Like I, you know, I I want to go to a restaurant. I want to go to a bar. I want to, I want to do like all the things. So, I I mean, we have people who contact us all the time and they're like, you know, are you having dinners? I really want to come to a dinner. And and we can sense that people just want to like get out and do something. And this is like a perfect Mm -hmm. environment, but there's, there's so much risk. I mean, like West Virginia is leading the country right now in the transmission rate and you know we're just in a vulnerable spot and it would be i think i don't think we would make money at it either so it's just for us we just decided Mm -hmm. lay low and
2: yeah and also another issue for us is that we don't um those farms probably have a commercial kitchen on site right and we don't so we would still have to go in and rent a kitchen and prepare the food off site and bring it in so it's just a lot of extra work for us Mm -hmm. right right to make it yeah happen. yeah Here. no
0: and those are places who did the build out of the kitchen and now we're looking at having to pay the mortgage right yeah. Yeah. so yeah yeah but you guys it gives you the opportunity to be the storytellers for a while mm-hmm. um and i can't wait to listen to your podcast this is going to be such fun
1: yeah yeah i'm excited to hear what you think about it yeah
0: yeah we want feedback awesome <laughs> Awesome. Is there we've covered so much ground is there anything that we haven't talked about?
1: I think for us one of the, one of the things that has come out of COVID is that people come to us looking not just for stories but for, you know, kind of instruction. Um, you know, they want to learn about where the food comes from and we've always sort of approached our business as being kind of multifaceted in terms of um Being like, you know, having a a retail or not retail, but sort of like food, you know, culinary experience driven thing, and then having an educational aspect of it. But I think, you know, with COVID, seeing that this has really increased everyone's appetite for the education component of our work, I I think when we do move forward and and think about things like building a facility, um, it's even more important than it was before that we build the facility and approach all of our infrastructure and all of our business in a way that, um, you know, emphasizes the education mm-hmm. component of it. So it's like we're building a classroom just as much as we are yeah. a dining space.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, because, yeah, especially if people are going to come for a long t- from a long way away. Mm-hmm. They may mm-hmm. just want to do more than just dinner.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well, you guys keep doing the awesome work you're doing. Um, and we'll, we'll, ch- we'll check back.
1: Sounds good. Okay,
2: sounds good. Thanks so much, Jim. Yeah, thanks for oh, having you're us. you're
1: welcome. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.